Have you ever found yourself in the exact right place at the exact right time? When the circumstances lined up for the best of you or for somebody else? For example, maybe say you met your spouse because you happened to stop at a restaurant you'd never been to before and ran into a friend you hadn't seen for years and they introduced you to your future husband or wife. Maybe um, your, your first job, which led to a great career, is the result of a random conversation with a stranger at a party. Or maybe you were playing in a big game and, and the ball just rolled right to you at the right moment and you made the winning play. All of us in some way have been in the right place at the right time in our lives. Recently, I had a conversation with somebody who benefited because somebody happened to be in the right place at the right time. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a college friend I hadn't seen for a few years, and he told me uh, that a couple of years ago, he was climbing Mount McKinley, uh, which is also known as Denali uh, in Alaska, the tallest um, mountain in North America. He was climbing on an ice ridge several thousand feet up the side of the mountain when he, when he slipped and he fell over the edge. He fell a thousand feet down the face of a sheer cliff, and he, he obviously lived. What happened was... There were a couple climbers down below in an area which was typically restricted. Typically, they would not have been there. And somehow, when he got close to the bottom of the fall, a thousand feet down, he got snagged in their ropes, which were strung across the face of the cliff. And it caught him like a like a bug in a spider net. Instead of dying, he ended up with a messed up shoulder, arm, torn labrum, but he but he lived and he was fine a couple years later. All because a couple climbers he had never met happened to be in a place they normally wouldn't have been at the exact right place on the wall, the ropes in the exact perfect formation, and his life was saved. Well, today we're looking at a story in the Bible where everything seems to line up. And a person is in the right place at the right time, and instead of one life being spared, millions are. We're we'll continuing our sermon series that we started a couple of weeks ago entitled Life, Living in Faith Every, Every Day. And in this sermon series, we're looking at stories in the Bible which highlight, highlight faith. Different aspects of faith as individuals demonstrate faith and respond to God's call and will in a variety of situations and circumstances. And of course, the idea is, is that we will be people who will look to apply our faith and see God at work in our lives and apply our faith on everyday situations and circumstances. So far, we've looked at the Apostle Peter walking on the water to get to Jesus. Last week in the book of Judges, we looked at the the story of Gideon, a a reluctant, flawed military hero that God used to deliver Israel from her enemies. Today, we're going to be staying in the the Old Testament and, and look at another person who initially was very reluctant to step out in faith. And yet at the right moment, she did. And the people of Israel were once again spared. Of course, we're talking about the heroine, Esther. Now, a few things about the book of Esther. It's 10 chapters long, and the events described happened in the 5th century B.C., so a long time ago. The people of Israel have been in exile for many years in what is now modern-day Iraq. And after several years of exile, Jews are now given permission to return to their homeland and to rebuild the battered city of Jerusalem. Many of people take, take, take that opportunity and they return. However, it's clear from this story that some decide to stay. We're not sure why. Maybe life in an established world power 
seemed better to them than rebuilding a battered city and country. Maybe they had economic or business incentives to stay. Maybe their health didn't permit them to travel. Or maybe they simply had intermarried and didn't want to leave family behind. Regardless, some of the Jewish people stayed behind. And the king under whom they now live is is a man named Xerxes. In Esther, he's also called Ahasuerus. Xerxes is the Greek name. Ahasuerus is his Hebrew name. Xerxes is easier to say, so I'm going to call him Xerxes for the sermon. He's the most powerful man in the the whole world at that time. His kingdom, the Persian Empire, stretches from Egypt to Pakistan, a, a land mass which would be about the size of the United States today. A huge, massive empire back in those days. Now, now Xerxes, you should know, is not only mentioned in the Bible, he's also talked about and written about by Herodotus, who is the Greek historian known as the father of of history. And Herodotus describes Xerxes as tall, handsome, ruthless, jealous, and given to fits of rage. Sounds like quite a guy. Xerxes is also remembered because uh, maybe you've seen the movie or heard about the movie 300. It's about the battle where 300 Greek soldiers take a stand against a massive army of Persians. Xerxes is the king who sent that Persian army out. Now, like a lot of powerful people, Xerxes liked to celebrate his, celebrate his achievements and his, his uh, victories. He liked to celebrate basically himself. Okay? We see that in Esther because there are a series of, of feasts and parties thrown. There's ten, actually, in the book. And the first party comes in chapter 1. It's thrown as a way to impress his noblemen and his, his top executives. It's six months long. At the end of the six months, he hosts an over-the-top banquet. Now, like any good king, he wants to be seen as a ladies' man. And so he, he calls to his wife, uh, Vashti. He tells her to dress up, come in and parade around as a trophy wife. She refuses. He banishes her forever from his presence. And upon the suggestion of an advisor, he arranges for an empire-wide beauty contest to select his new queen. Sort of the, the first version of the reality show, The Bachelor. Okay? And this is where Esther steps in. Chapter 2. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had brought her up as his own daughter who, uh, when her father and mother died. So Mordecai and Esther are both Jews who stayed behind, and Mordecai has a few connections at the king's palace, and he uses these connections to get Esther an appearance before Xerxes the king. And here's where it gets kind of interesting, because it tells us something about Mordecai and Esther and their relationship with God at the time, because and also because their decision here is a key element in a big turn, a big surprise at the end of the book of Esther. Listen to verse 10 of chapter two. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. So Esther and Mordecai are either afraid of being known as Jews, kind of understandable when you see what's happened to the Jewish people over the centuries, or they feel it's to their advantage to be thought of as Persians. Either way, maybe it's, maybe it's a combination of both. But it also tells us something about their faith, as they both seem to have no qualms whatsoever about hiding the fact that they are, in fact, Jews, God's chosen people. So Esther, as we're going to see, ends up marrying Xerxes, And by the time we get to chapter four in just a minute, we're going to see that Xerxes has no idea whatsoever that this woman that he's chosen 
that he's married to, his queen, he has no idea that she is a Jew. And what that tells us is that she's been married to him for several years, four or five years by the time chapter four rolls around. And, and she has not been obeying scripture. She's not been going to worship in the synagogue. She has not been tithing or giving. She's not been going to public and corporate prayer. She's not been observing the Passover feast, the Jewish holidays. She's not obeying the dietary laws in the Old Testament. If she had been placed on trial for being suspected of being Jewish, there wouldn't have been enough evidence to convict her. Mordecai isn't any better. It was his idea in the first place that she hide her identity as a Jew. This young woman that he has raised as his own daughter, he pawns her off and places her in an awkward place of compromise, married to a wicked king. For what purpose? Connections, future favors, Maybe he just wanted her to have some things that he could not provide for her. As, as the queen, she would never go for want. She would always have a life of luxury and security. But either way, whatever his motives are, he traded the integrity of their faith for the security of wealth and prestige. Now, before we're too hard on them, have we really never done the same thing? Have we never held our tongue or adjusted our behavior? To get along at work or at school or at a social gathering to be seen as not, you know, too, too religious. Sometimes it seems to be much better just to keep our faith, our beliefs, our relationship with Christ to ourselves. It's a private thing, right? Better for business, better for relationships with those who don't share our faith. No one need know. But when we take this approach like Esther, there may not be enough evidence to convict us as being followers of Jesus Christ. Well, this approach, it seems to work out at first for Mordecai and Esther. Esther 2.17, Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen. And then toward the end of chapter 2, something else happens that further cements her status, her standing with or Xerxes. Mordecai is hanging out by the city, the, the palace gates. He overhears a couple of the king's officials who are plotting to assassinate Xerxes. He gets word to Esther, who warns Xerxes. The plot is thwarted. Xerxes is saved. And then something happens that will prove important later in the story. Esther 2.23. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles... All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. Okay, so, so far in the story, three of the five main characters have emerged. We've met Esther, we've met Xerxes, we've met Mordecai. And in chapter three, the the fourth character steps forth, Haman. Every story needs an archvillain. Haman is the archvillain, I guess. He's promoted to second in command in the whole empire. He's now Xerxes' right-hand man. He's also the descendant of the Amalekites a nation of people who we are told were fierce, centuries-old enemies of Israel. So Haman is full of himself, and he expects everybody but the king and the queen to bow down to him. But one day as he's walking along, Mordecai, he passes Mordecai, Mordecai doesn't bow down, and it makes him upset. And this is when Mordecai's identity is revealed. Some of his friends know that he's a Jew, and they share this news with Haman. 
And listen to Haman's response when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew. Esther 3. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman is using Mordecai's refusal to bow down as an opportunity to not only settle a personal grudge, but to institute empire-wide genocide against the Jews, a 5th century or 5th century BC Holocaust. Every man, woman, and child in the kingdom from Egypt to Pakistan, everyone who was a Jew, no one would be spared, was to be killed. And so Haman uses his influence with the king. He convinces the king. He tells the king, there's this group of people who live in your, your incredible empire, O mighty king. They don't obey the local customs. They keep to themselves. They're kind of strange in how they worship and what they eat. And, oh, yeah, they don't obey your laws. I think we need to wipe them out. They, this cannot stand. Xerxes agrees. He makes a decree to destroy them, and Haman sets the date. Now we come to chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. So Esther gets wind of this, of this public mourning that Mordecai is engaging in, and she sends him you know, clean clothes. You know, he's, he's my father, I'm the queen, he should be wearing, she sends him clean clothes to get rid of the sackcloth and wear clean clothes, but he, he refuses. She has no idea what Haman has in store for the Jewish people. So Esther sends a trusted servant to find out what's going on. Mordecai tells him everything, tells him the story, and sends the servant back to Esther to fill her in and to ask her to beg Xerxes to spare the Jewish people. Esther sends back a message. kind of feels like junior hires passing notes here. Esther sends back a message which says, in essence, first, I haven't seen the king in 30 days. You should know that. He's probably off hanging out with some of his hundreds of escorts. And secondly, nobody, even the queen, goes before the king without an invitation because it usually leads to death. And so we come to the hinge of the story here. Both Esther and Mordecai, who have hidden their identity as God's people, who have compromised their faith on many occasions, they now take a huge step of faith. Listen again, chapter 4. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone, of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your fam father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews, fast for me, fast for me, and I will do the same. And she says, When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Incredible words of faith. She's hit her faith. She hasn't practiced it since she's been the queen. She's reluctant at first to intervene when asked by Mordecai, and yet now she states, I will go to the king, and if I die, I die. She didn't know what was going to happen. She just knew that it was God's will to take the next step. You see, faith doesn't mean that we know for sure how things are going to work out in our lives or in our world. Faith doesn't mean that there aren't doubts or risk involved. Faith in this story involves an imperfect woman willing to risk it all, even her life, for the sake of being on God's side, for the sake of doing what God wanted her to do. And at the moment of truth, she steps out 
into faith, not from back from it. She goes before Xerxes. He doesn't kill her. He asks what she, he can do for her. But it shows that she's not just beautiful, but wise and cunning because she doesn't jump right to the matter at hand. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to a feast that she prepares. She wines them. She dines them. And Xerxes asks what she wants at the end of the meal. And she says, come to another feast I'm going to throw for you. Then I'll tell you. She's buttering him up or maybe she's building up her courage. Probably both. So in the meantime, Haman thinks he must be a favorite of this queen. As this is twice now, he's been invited to a, a private dinner with Xerxes and Esther. He's feeling good about life. He's feeling good about himself until he bumps into Mordecai again. And he's reminded of his refusal to bow down. And so that night, with the help of his wife, he comes up with a plan to ask Xerxes at the second dinner to have Mordecai impaled on a tall pole that Haman will build, have built. And this is where the fifth and most important character steps into the story. It's God. Now, you may have noticed that so far in the scripture on the screen, God's name has not been mentioned. In fact, God's name is not mentioned once in the whole book of Esther. The only place, only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned once. You might think, well, where is God in the story? Hang on with me. We'll get there in a second. So let's go back to the story. That night, Xerxes the king can't sleep. And so what does the king do when he can't sleep? He does what a lot of us do when we can't sleep. He, he reaches for some boring reading material. He sends his servant to get the history book. I, it pains me to say that because I'm a history major. But he reaches for the history book. He pulls it in. He opens it up and begins to read to Xerxes. And when his servant opens the page of the history book, of everything that's been happening in his reign, he opens it to the part, the page, all these hundreds of pages. He turns to the page where it writes, where it talks about Mordecai helping Xerxes and saving Xerxes from an assassination plot. Xerxes is like, oh yeah, I remember that happened. And he says, chapter 6, verse 3, What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. When he's told that nothing was ever done for Mordecai, he orders his servant to take care of it. But Haman walks in in chapter 6, and, and the king asks Haman, Hey, you're my right-hand guy. What should I do for somebody that I highly esteem, who is wonderful, who has been good to me? Haman thinks he's talking about himself. So Haman says, I think he should be dressed in a royal robe. He should ride your horse. He should be paraded through the streets before all the people and they should, they should bow down and, 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 and honor him. And the king says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Go and do that. Go and do that for, for Mordecai. A delicious twist there, isn't it? Mordecai ends up leading the horse, or excuse me, Haman ends up leading the horse of Mordecai, the man that he once killed. Now, you say, where's God in the midst of this? Well, you know, I think a lot of us sometimes miss God's subtle miracles and God's presence in the everyday events of life. You know, I think God's most common miracle, if there is such a thing as a common miracle, is the coincidence. The right person in the right place at the right time. I mean, if I asked some of you this morning, can you tell me a miraculous story? Some of you would tell me heal, uh, stories of healings or maybe some time when you saw God work in a powerful and amazing way. But many of us would tell stories of miraculous coincidences. Like falling from a cliff and getting hung up on 
a couple of ropes a thousand feet from the top. So in this story, we see God at work. Who gives Xerxes insomnia? Who guides the servant's hand to the page that speaks of Mordecai's help in the assassination plot? Who, in a stunning reversal, turns the tables on Haman? God. Though God is never mentioned in the book of Esther once, his hand is seen everywhere. God placed Esther in the care of Mordecai, a man with connections. God made Esther beautiful. God put Mordecai at the palace gates to hear the plot. God guided the servant to Mordecai's story in the book of records. And God places Esther, as it says in chapter 4, for such a time as this to intervene with Xerxes and save her people. And she does. At the second story, when Xerxes asks her what she wants, she responds directly this time. If I have found favor with you, Majesty, and if it pleases you, grant my life, this is my petition, spare my people, this is my request, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. And Xerxes is enraged. How dare anyone make a move against my wife? That's a disrespect to the king. He asked he would do such a thing, and Esther points the finger at Haman. And another, in another ironic, delicious twist, Haman ends up impaled on the very pole he had built for Mordecai. And God, God's people are saved at the end. Okay? So what are the lessons, the last two minutes here, for us about faith, about living in faith every day? Well, first, we should have great confidence and great assurance knowing that God is constantly at work behind the scenes, even when we do not see him in our story or in the story of the world around us, working for the good of his people. God in this story works through Mordecai and Esther, who are initially afraid to step out in faith and identify themselves with God. God even works through Xerxes and Haman, two men who certainly were not paragons of virtue and morality. God is tirelessly working in all the circumstances of our lives for our ultimate good. Now, that does not mean that he causes bad things to happen to us, but God is never surprised. He's always got a plan. And even when we lack faith, he is faithful. And even when others intend to do God's people harm, God's purposes will be done in the end. Second, when we find ourselves in the right place at the right time, remember, it's not a coincidence. God is the architect of our lives, building something out of the good and bad things. And so when the moment comes, when it's our turn, when God places us in the right place at the right time with the right people, we must not step back in fear. We must step forward in faith, being God's agent to bring help, to do his will at the right time. A prayer, a word of encouragement, listening to somebody's story when they need somebody, offering to meet a need, even if it will cost us, standing with Jesus for Jesus, even if, as it could have for Esther, cost us our very lives. You know, we each come to these times when we cannot evade a a daunting, even threatening responsibility. But it's not my fault, you might say. Look at the problems in the world. It's not my fault. I didn't create this situation. I just inherited it. I'm, I'm a part of, of a broken and fallen world. That's true. It may not be your fault. But it's your time. It's true that it's not your fault that thousands of children die from starvation every day. It's true that it's not your fault that hundreds of Millions of people, or excuse me, millions of people go to bed hungry every night. It's true that it's not your fault that 250 years of slavery kept millions of God's people in chains 
because of the color of their skin in this country. It's true that it's not your fault that millions of people grow up not knowing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's true that it's not your fault that in our community there are hurting, lonely, wounded people, children growing up out without a father or mother, wounded people, marriages falling apart, people struggling with addiction or depression or loneliness, people living at or below the poverty line. It's true that it's not your fault, my fault, but it's our time. God has placed each of us in places where we can make a difference. God is opening doors of opportunity for us to live in faith every day. God appointed opportunities. God has placed us in this church, in this community, in the state, country, and world for such a time as this. Don't miss the opportunity to step out in faith. God will get his will done one way or the other, but don't miss out on the opportunity to be a part of what he's doing in this world. May we be found faithful when our time comes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Esther and Mordecai. Lord, we can identify with them in so many ways. We're flawed. We're scared sometimes to step out in faith, to stand up for our beliefs, to share our thoughts and feelings and values. But Lord, we pray that we would also identify and be like Esther and Mordecai by stepping out in faith despite the personal costs and the risk to be prepared and to recognize a moment as from you to realize that we've been placed in our sphere of influence whether it's work, school our, our family and friends wherever were you placed Lord to realize that we've been placed there for a purpose for such a time as this so help us Lord help us to be found faithful as we live each and every day in faith Amen Just stand as we respond Lord we just respond